Well, this series is uh, coming to a close. <laughs> it's a series that we started in September, so you imagine that, you know, we've been in it for a while. We took a couple departures every, every once in a while, like for Christmas and for Easter, but yeah, we've been in James for a while now. So we have this week, and then we're going to attempt to go through the rest of chapter 5 next week. And then the 25th is just kind of a standalone Sunday. Pastor Danny's going to be preaching. Week after that is Vacation Bible School Sunday, which I am pumped about. Uh, be ready for that one. That's going to be good. Uh, Pastor David is on for one sermon. Pastor Danny's on. And then we're going to start a new sermon series in July. All right, July 23rd. We're going to do Summer in the Psalms. So we're going to take some time to look at some various Psalms, and that'll carry us through um, the fall. So. We, we have James this week, we have James next week, and we've had James for a long time now. And I've loved the truth and the rawness of James. He just kind of tells it like it is, really. Um, he does so again in this passage that we're going to read from here in a moment. Um, he's writing to people who have been dispersed and displaced, but instead of ignoring the elephant in the room, which was their suffering... He addresses it and he names it. He talks about it, right? James 1.1, we learned this on, the, on day one of the series back in September. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So from verse 1, you, my audience, James says, are part of the dispersion, this means that people have probably aggressively wronged them. They've been scattered. They've tasted the bitter darkness of a world that's filled with sin. They're away from where they should have been. James's audience has been sinned against and they have been wronged. And that is the touch point for us today. We all know what it feels like and is like to be sinned against. It hurts. And it can bring about all sorts of destructive feelings in us. Think about this. When you or I are sinned against, we often experience feelings of sadness. We might feel violated or isolated and alone. Sometimes we might experience abandonment issues that makes us feel fragile or inferior or empty inside. Or maybe when we're sinned against, we feel anger. And there's really nothing wrong with that, but unchecked, that can turn into bitterness and self-pity and even jealousy. When we feel provoked, it's easy to be annoyed and become skeptical and numb, withdrawn. We just want to turn and distance ourselves from that which is unpleasant or that which made us angry in the first place. And it could be people even in our own homes. Or... It's natural when we're sinned against to experience a feeling of fear. We might feel threatened or insecure or weak. We might feel exposed or helpless or worried or worthless. And so we live in a world that's filled with sin, and sin brings about all sorts of death, and we know this and we've experienced this. So there is a massive, massive touching point in this passage for all of us today, and James is going to address the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is called suffering. 
And we've all experienced it to some degree or another. And we have evidence of it in our lives right now. And it will be something that we have to deal with in our future as well. So it's a massive, lifelong elephant in our rooms. We are going to be recipients of some amount of suffering in our lives. So James, in his rawness, graciously addresses the elephant in the room. He doesn't just sugarcoat it and just pretend that it's not there. But the way that he addresses the elephant in the room, the suffering that we all have, is rather direct. Basically, he says, yes, there is an elephant in the room. Now, eat it. Eat the elephant. And you're like, eat the elephant? What? How? Well, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at what? A time, right? The elephant of suffering that we all have in our rooms of our lives, though daunting and overwhelming and seemingly impossible to endure, can be endured if we understand that enduring it is worth it. And we take it on just a little bit at a time. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Some of us wish that he wouldn't have said that. But him saying that demonstrates that he gets us. He gets us. Him saying this phrase here, this sentence here, demonstrates that Jesus Christ is forever culturally relevant. In this world, we will have troubles, and we will be sinned against. And James is led by the Holy Spirit to say to those who might be feeling violated, isolated, insecure, weak, worthless, to them and to us, this is what James says. Look in James 5. This is what he is writing. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And the term is brothers and sisters there. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Oh my. Sharon, that's a good word. Oh, oh my. 
What a truth-filled word that we just read and that was just shared to us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage and the strength to understand what James was led to say here and not only understand it, but then believe it wholeheartedly, steadfastly, and then act on what we've been told for the glory of Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so what are we meant to see here in this passage? Just reading it and just slowly working our way through it, you can see it's pretty heavy. What are we meant to see in this passage? And I think this is it. Your suffering is full of purpose. Your suffering, the suffering that you are going through, have gone through, currently going through, will go through, is full of purpose. And so James is concerned about the condition of our hearts while undergoing suffering. We can't just eradicate it and alleviate it. So he's concerned about the condition of our hearts while we're undergoing it. The Lord knows that wrongs are being done to us and to his audience here. The Lord is not unaware of them. He actually is fulfilling his purposes in them. And that's clear in the passage, and it'll be known here later on as we get into the study. So James is going to call us to two things in this passage. Two things. One thing we are told not to do, and one thing we are told to do. And there is one massive reason why we shouldn't do the one thing and do do the other thing. Yes, I said do do. All right. I wanted to work that in because I know it's a heavy message, right? So let's, <laughs> so dumb. So, so let's start with the one thing that we shouldn't do and then let's move on to the one thing that we should do and then finish with the massive reason, right? Why? Why? Why question? Okay, so your suffering is full of purpose, therefore, James says, do not grumble. Your suffering is full of purpose, so do not grumble. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When heat is applied to our situation, it's easy to do that which comes natural and easy. It's actually in our nature to grumble. It's really easy to express self-pity, muttering, murmuring, Grumbling reminds me of the story of the Israelites as they were brought out of slavery. Remember the story. God miraculously brought them out of a land of death and was bringing them into a promised land full of life. But because of their unbelief, their two-week journey took 40 years. And that tells me that the cost of unbelief is incredibly staggering. If you choose not to believe what God's word says or what he says about you and his purposes, the cost of that unbelief is staggering. Two weeks turns into 40 years. And during their wilderness wanderings, they were given over to grumbling about their suffering and their complaining. Now, honestly, 
I think that they get a little bit of a bad rap, right? We like to look at them and say, man, they shouldn't have done that. And yes, they shouldn't have grumbled given what they knew to be true about God. But think about this. We even have a fuller revelation of who our God is, and we still grumble, right? Given the same set of circumstances, or even like not even hardest circumstances, we would have done the same thing. I rem- and we do the same thing. I remember talking to my sister-in-law, who spent time in Iraq in the army, and she was there during a sandstorm, and she mentioned to my wife and I one time, I see why the Israelites were given over to complaining. It's miserable here. Go to the Middle East during a time of a sandstorm and see if you might not just, be, you know, this isn't great, <laughs> right? Given the circumstances, it's easy to do, and we do it with much less adversity oftentimes. The Israelites grumbled against God and his plans, and God responded with a question and a statement of fact, and it's found in Numbers 14. Here's the question. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? And here's the statement of fact. I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. The question is, how long will this wicked congregation grumble against me? And I just wonder if he has the same question for us these days. Yes, there's a big, massive elephant in your room. Don't grumble about it. How long are you going to grumble about that elephant? It's there. It's lifelong. So how long are you going to grumble against me about that? And here's the statement of fact. I have heard the grumblings of the people, meaning I'm well aware of the reasons why you're grumbling. Yes, they are in a tough spot, the Israelites. They are in this tough spot because of their unbelief. And yet I'm still with them, leading and guiding them all throughout their wilderness wanderings. I'm there. The presence of God never forsook them, even in the wilderness. His purposes were ripening day by day. The promised land was still on God's agenda, but it was in God's timing. But in the meantime, they and we have a tendency to grumble against God. And interesting enough, pay attention to this. Interesting enough, that's not the type of grumbling that James addresses in this passage. James warns against grumbling directed in a different direction. So let's look at the verse again. Look at what it says. Do not grumble against not God... Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Whoa. He's not talking about grumbling like in a vertical way against God, but like like now horizontally, you're going to bear the brunt of my frustrations and suffering, all you people, my brothers and my sisters. Man, isn't that the case? The grumbling James addressing here takes place among the brotherhood and the sisterhood of believers. And that's the case so often. We don't, want like, we don't like what's happening in our lives, and so we start griping to each other or even about each other. And so James says, don't grumble against one another, brothers. James is addressing his relationship to his audience in this section. He's using a term that refers to the family of God. Adelphoi could be brothers and sisters. 
He actually uses the term, if you look in your Bible, he uses the term three times in four verses. Verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, and then also in verse 12. So four times, like, hey, family, 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 stop, don't grumble against one another. He says, look, we're family. You're like, well, that's what my family does. No, it shouldn't be. Don't. Look, we're family is what James is saying. So when things don't go our way, or even worse, when we're actively sinned against, let's recognize that it hurts, but not, let, let's not give ourselves over to infectious grumbling. We can acknowledge the hardness of the hurt, but we must not let the hardness cause us to drift in the wrong direction. So think about this. Some of this is speculation, but now in this passage, we don't even know what they were griping and murmuring and grumbling about. James doesn't tell us. He just says that they were doing it. So one commentator speculates that maybe, think about this, we do this, maybe they're projecting their frustrations with the wealthy landovers that we talked about last week in the previous passage that we talked about. They have legitimate frustrations about their exploitation and it's left a sour taste in their mouths and they're legitimately frustrated by being sinned against and they went through something hard that really hurt but now perhaps they're projecting their frustrations on each other. Man, isn't that possible? Have you ever been legitimately frustrated with something or someone but then taken it out on the wrong something or someone? Ask your spouse if you've ever done that. You know, like, have you ever done that? Yes, it's, it's entirely possible. So that could be the case. Or maybe they're blaming each other for the problems that they were facing as a congregation. You know, we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be dispersed if it wasn't for you, you, and you. I tried to ambiguously point, like, <laughs> we wouldn't be dispersed, Right? If it wasn't for everybody else, we're in this situation suffering because of other people, because of you. And this is entirely possible because we're really good at noticing specks in other people's eyes while neglecting the planks in our own. So we don't really know why these people, James's audience, were given over to grumbling, but we do know that they needed to be told not to grumble. So why? Why shouldn't they grumble? Well, here's something to write down and put on the fridge or wherever you see it most often. Grumbling doesn't do anybody any good, including you. It's a false sense of comfort. Like, oh, I just need to get this off my chest. It's going to come right back on your chest tenfold. Self-pity. Please, listen, I am talking to myself now. I am talking to myself now, and, and all of you, you're hearing me talk to myself. Self-pity and a woe-is-me attitude is only going to make matters worse for me and for us. It's only going to make it worse, even if you think initially it's going to make things feel better. Self-pity and a woe-is-me attitude is only going to make matters worse for you. You are spiraling downward in self-pity and grumbling. You're not only making your situation better you're, or any, in, in worse, you're not making it any better, but you're probably sucking the life out of everyone else around you. So you, you've become kind of like a black hole. 
So James says there's a better alternative to that. There is a better way forward. Instead of doing that which comes natural and easy, James wants us to do something uncommon and hard. You're like, well, why in the world would I do that? It's uncommon, it's hard. Well, the more you actually do something, the easier it becomes. And so the reason why James wants us to do this, to implement his advice, the more we do it, it will become more common for us and it will actually end up producing something much better. A much better result will come. So instead of grumbling and complaining about your suffering, he tells his audience to adopt the strong position of patience during suffering. So now we know what not to do. Now let's see what James tells us to do. That was verse 9, and this is what James tells us to do. Be patient. Be patient. Be steadfastly patient. Look at verse 7 and 8 and then 10 and 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See the farmer waits. And that word is behold the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we considered, or we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So just on a surface reading, even if you haven't read this passage for a long time, and I just read it to you right now, you can't miss the theme of patience here. You shouldn't. If you're, if you're observant of the text, you can't miss that theme of patience. It's repeated four times in the passage. And we're familiar with the cultural proverb, right? Good things come to those who wait. So the question is, well, what does waiting look like? What does it mean to practice patience and wait on God during a time of suffering? So here's the thing. Waiting on God is not passive. It is actually very actively aggressive. Patience is not just sitting back, well, God is sovereign, sitting back, twiddling your thumbs. Patience is actually being a good steward of the current situation in which God has you in until he provides clarity for what is next. Waiting on God requires you to do everything that you know you ought to do until God comes and does what you can't do. So, as we wait on God, we do everything we already know to do until he intervenes. And I think this connects us back to James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sometimes in a season of suffering, we just kind of cocoon ourselves and say, I can't move. Like I'm paralyzed here. And we don't, we're not active at all. We're not really waiting on God. 
We know the right thing to do, but we're failing to do it. And so the cultural proverb says, good things come to those who wait. But James doesn't have access to our cultural proverb. And so he talks about something that he sees in his culture. And he starts talking about farming. There's a touch point for Lyndon, right? Look at these verses. You'll see the idea of farming here. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See the farmer. Behold the farmer. When you look at verse 7, you see an analogy. And we saw this verbiage before in James when he was talking about the tongue. Remember? Behold the ships controlled by a small rudder. Behold the great forest set ablaze by a small spark. This time it's behold the patiently, hardworking, God-dependent farmer. James makes a connection between farming and our lives, so let's see the connection. And honestly, I don't need to tell people in Linden that farming is relatively easy work, right? All you do is plant some seeds and then drive around in an air-conditioned tractor, and then at the end of the harvest season, you bada-bing, bada-boom. Isn't that right? I mean, that's easy, right? Is anyone going to throw something at me? <laughs> it's almost as easy as being a pastor. I just work one day a week. <laughs> All right? We know that at least for farming, as far as farming is concerned, what I just described is far from the reality. Farmers patiently wait for crops to produce, but that production of produce, it takes hard work. And it takes time. And it takes the providential workings of God. So James says to us, Behold the farmer. Behold his hard work. The farmer does the hard work of planting and plowing and planting. The farmer does the hard work of actively maintaining his crops through vine dressing. He trims the trendles and he prunes the vines. Behold the farmer's hard work. Behold the farmer's patience. He actively, aggressively does the hard work while patiently waiting the passing of time. He does hard work consistently over time. Behold his hard work. Behold his patience. Behold his dependence upon God. Although the farmer is doing all that he or she can do, the farmer is still completely dependent upon that which only God can do. The provision of the early and the late rains that are necessary for growth will only come down at the command of the one who rules the heavens. And when the farmer does the hard work and he actively waits on God and does what only God can do, eventually precious fruit will be possessed. And all those entities working together produces a precious fruit in time. So James says, behold the farmer. So here's a few things that we need to learn about patience. 
patience requires some sort of adverse condition or adversity to go through. There's some level of unpleasantness that we must be currently experiencing that we long to be done with in order for patience to occur in our lives. I don't have to patiently wait for a back massage to end, right? I enjoy it. I patiently wait for the next one to come along, right? Because if your back is achy, a future massage is something you look forward to, but the aching is something that you presently endure. And so patience assumes some sort of affliction or aching or suffering. And patience requires the passing of time. Oh. Time is something, I don't know if you know this, but we have no control over. You just can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. In the world of music, a metronome is nice because it can set the tempo, but that's not how time works in real life. Time just keeps ticking away, but we can't speed it up or slow it down. And with each passing moment, we're actually getting closer to the end, but we can't speed its coming. We have to wait with patience. Patience requires time. Suffering over time. David Pallison says, Patience is willing to work with wrong over time. It's an act of courage. It's a clear-minded choice to engage for the long haul with something that needs repair. In other words, there are going to be things in this world and in your life that will adversely affect you and I but we're going to have to make the active choice of not grumbling and causing division. Instead, we are going to persevere and not give up and wait for the purposes of God to pop out of the furrowed ground of our lives, much like the farmer waits for the precious fruit of his or her crops to be harvested at the end of the season. There will be an end of the season. So, we say, I am going to endure adverse conditions over time, knowing that God's purposes are ripening every hour. And people, that takes courageous faith. Not a great amount of faith, but just faith in itself to believe that. If we, by faith, exemplify persevering patience in our lives, you know what that does? It pleases God. So instead of grumbling, James says, be patient, be patient, be steadfastly patient. Look at verse 8. He says, establish your hearts. So it's interesting because James isn't just talking about holding on for dear life here. He says, establish your hearts. This is anchoring and taking the strong position of anchoring your heart to the God who is compassionate and merciful and purpose-filled. 
This establishing our hearts is an engagement of our wills. This is us talking to ourselves about our situations instead of allowing our situations to talk to us and have the final word. The final word is this. The compassionate and merciful God is fulfilling his purposes while I wait on him. Remember the song based off of the Bible verse in Isaiah 40. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. So we will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Why? Because our God, you reign forever. My suffering doesn't reign. My situation doesn't reign You reign forever, so I'm going to wait upon you, and as I do that, my strength will rise. I will have established my heart. This verse is true, and so we must tell ourselves this, not based off of wishful thinking, but an act of obedience to what God's Word says. And we're going to continue to have to parade that truth across our minds until the end of our adversity that we're currently facing. We must establish our hearts. So James wants us to behold the farmer, but he also wants us to behold something else. It's, it's almost comical when you see this, how, many, how often he uses that word, behold, behold, behold. Like it's like there's analogies and pictures everywhere. He says, open your eyes to these things. So not only the farmer, but what else? In the passage, he wants us to realize and behold the blessed nature of prophets who spoke the true words of God, but were never listened to by the people of God. Ah. Those men and women blessed when their message wasn't heard. He wants us to behold that. James wants us to behold the blessed nature of Job, whose story is captured in the book of the Bible that bears his name. And you're familiar with the arc of his story, right? Suffering on top of suffering on top of suffering with a side of suffering. Behold Job! Behold the prophets who spoke the true words of God and weren't listened to by the people of God. Look at James 5, 10 through 11. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here's the equation. Not being listened to for the prophets... And suffering upon suffering for Job was purposed by the Lord to demonstrate God's compassion and mercy. And we say, whoa. Whoa. Or like Sharon, like, oh, oh. So here, like if I had a whiteboard, just imagine... Here's the equation that James proposes and writes on the whiteboard of our lives. Purposed suffering plus our patient, steadfast endurance of that suffering 
equal sign. Opportunities for God to demonstrate compassion and mercy. Ah. For the farmer, God poured out the early and the late rains and that produced a precious fruit. For the patient and steadfast sufferer, God pours out his compassion and mercy. That's fruit. That's precious. This causes us to say, praise God, for his purposes will ripen in his time. One day, get this, the precious fruit of our hardships and our sufferings here will be ready for our consumption and it will produce an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. But until then, it actually needs to stay on the vine and ripen a bit more so that when it's finally picked, it will be, oh, so sweet. Compassion, a God who is emotionally connected to us and has moved to his core when he sees his children suffering. Mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Remember the Israelites were there because of their unbelief, but yet God's presence still led them to the promised land in his timing. And now we finally arrive. We don't grumble, but we're patient, patient, steadfastly patient, establishing our hearts. Why? And we finally arrive at the reason why we don't grumble and why we do patiently, steadfastly wait. This is why the coming judgment of the Lord is at hand. Look at this theme. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Look at verse 9. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, he's standing at the door. People, there is a ton, ton of stuff I want to say about that theme. And, and we're going to have to utilize a different sermon to get into that. At hand, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord is at hand? And I'm, I'm tempted just to like take the next couple of weeks just to go through that. There's a ton that I want to say about this, but we're going to have to utilize a different sermon for that. And so we might get into it in July and August. In our Summer in the Psalm series, there's the, the theme is there. But what we're meant to see here is this. The coming judgment of the Lord is at hand. Meaning God is not unaware of your sufferings. God actually is a just judge and he just so happens to be standing at the courtroom of the world and he's getting ready to enter in and give his final verdict. Listen to that, people. His verdict... In his timing, will administer justice, granting relief to those who have patiently, steadfastly waited upon him, or he would administer justice that results in the destruction of those whose hearts and actions are worthy of judgment. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
Think about this. In the case of human courts, when a judge enters the room, everyone is advised, or actually commanded, to rise and acknowledge the honorable position in the presence of the judge. When Jesus cracks the sky, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all, even over our sufferings. And his judgment is going to be just. So we just need to keep waiting because he's going to be right on time. And actually that makes me think of a song by one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Andrew Peterson. And he says this, mulling on these themes, he writes, every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall Every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. Every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon, and you will rise up in the end. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and he murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? And would he not repay the tyrant on the day of his return? So, oh, wait, oh, wait the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know that you need a savior He's patient in his anger, but he will rise up in the end. And when the stars come crashing to the sea, and the high and the mighty fall down on their knees, when you see the sun descending in the sky, the chains of death will fall around your feet, and you will rise up in the end. God, I pray for us that we would have heard from you in the moments prior to even this prayer and even the moments right after this prayer, even during the moments of this prayer, that we would recognize, even though it's a hard recognition, that we will eventually be blessed if we remain steadfast and patient during times of suffering in our lives when we're actively sinned against and it hurts and we feel violated or isolated or weak or fragile or worthless or we're given over to self-pity and grumbling, when we adopt that woe is me mindset, God help us to fight against that and not give in to that which will make our situation only worse. But help us to adopt that strong position of being patient and steadfastly waiting while doing everything that you've called us to do in the meantime until you come again to grant relief to those of us who are suffering. God, help us to live in light of the future coming of our King. And as this song, as we sing, talks about stewarding our suffering, I pray that we would find strength to meet the time of our trials here. And that we would just simply trust in your wise bestowment of these things. Not give in to worry or fear, but recognize that your heart is kind beyond all measure. 
and that you are allowing us to go through what we're going through on this day because you deem it best. So God, I pray that this would be a song of um, expectant praise of you actually doing these things that we sing about. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and sing.